0: And amen, y'all can take your seats. And what a Sunday it has been already. Y'all ready to hear from God's word? Enough! All right. I want to start off this morning's message actually a little differently. I want to start off with a quick poll. By a show of hands, all right, how many of you have ever done something that you're really ashamed of? Okay. I appreciate the honesty. Okay, now what I want you to do is turn to your neighbor and tell them exactly what you did. I'm just, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Don't worry. I don't want you to do that. So a couple of you in the back start to get up out of your seat, like, I'm, I'm out of here. This is what this church is about. No. But did you notice that pit in your stomach? When I asked you that, did you notice that pit in your stomach, that, that rush of fear, that reflex that made you want to go run and hide? That's the power of Shame. It's honestly just a really small, small taste of it, but I wanted you just to get that little small taste so that you can understand how forceful this emotion can really be. See, well, I think that there's not a person in here, whether you raise your hand or not, that can deny having ever felt shame. But what I think most of us are simply unaware of is the amount of influence that this emotion has in our lives. That for many of us, shame is actually the primary motivator of most of our decisions. That it influences so much of what we do. Let me just give you a, a small example to help you see what I mean. When I was a kid, I was in I think sixth grade, and I was a really shy kid. And I had a really big crush on this girl that was in my class probably see where this is going already well I'm going to tell you a little bit okay so it got to the end of the school year and I was feeling a little bit confident maybe because this school year was about to end and I thought I'm going to tell this girl how I feel and I told her how I felt and I'll spare you the details let me just say it was abundantly clear those feelings only went in one direction it was abundantly clear to me and and while this may seem like a a simple and innocent sort of moment the reality is it it wasn't because the shame of that moment actually stuck with me for years. It actually influenced some of my friendships. I think it influenced some of my future relationships. Because it led me to believe that I wasn't enough. It led me to believe that I wasn't worthy. That I needed to do something in order to compensate for the things that I was lacking. That's the power of shame. Right? It can take even the simplest and most innocent of moments, a single word, and it can use it to yield influence over a lifetime. But here's the thing, family. As, as powerful as the influence of shame can be, its impact goes far, far further. Right? Shame has the ability to close us off from community. Shame has the ability to destroy intimacy in our relationships. And it can even put in danger our own lives. I believe each and every person that raised their hand a moment ago, you could probably attest to the impact that shame has had in your life. That's why it's so important that we address this topic head on, so that we can learn to silence the voice of shame in our lives, so that it no longer has this kind of influence or impact over us. And so the way we're going to do that this morning and throughout this series is not by listening to the voice of shame, but instead by listening to the voice of God, By looking to his word and receiving his truth, who he says we are and who he created us to be. Because we want those words to be the words that have influence and impact in our lives. Amen? See, here's what I believe we're going to come to find out this morning. Is that shame is simply the end result of a mistaken identity. Shame is simply the end result of a mistaken identity. So by learning your true identity, you'll not only be able to silence the voice of shame, you'll find freedom from it. You'll find freedom from shame. That's what we're after this morning, and that's what we're after throughout this series. Freedom from the influence and the impact of shame. And that freedom can only be found when we first understand our true identity. So that's where we're going this morning. We're going to start by talking about identity. It might seem like a strange place to start a conversation about shame, but this is where we have to start. Over the course of the next few weeks, we're going to talk about the more intricate parts of shame, right? How we respond to it, the things it causes us to do, and then, of course, how God deals with us in our shame, because it's ultimately, right, His voice that we want to hear, So that's a little bit about what you can expect over the course of the next few weeks as we take this journey towards silencing the shame in our lives and finding freedom from it. But before we hear from the Lord, before we read his word, before we receive his truth, let's just pause for a moment in a word of prayer. Would you join me? Oh, Father, we come before you this morning, Lord. We are so eager to hear from you. Lord, we are surrounded by so many voices that are are vying for our attention, that are vying for our affection. Lord, I just pray that you would just silence those other voices right now so that we would only hear your words. Would you remove the distractions that are around us? Would you remove any barriers that stand between us and you, Lord, so that we can more freely receive and embrace your truth? We ask these things in the name of your precious son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, if the first step in understanding our, uh, or in silencing shame is understanding our true identity, then we need to go back all the way to the beginning, back to when we first received this identity. So throughout this series, we're going to be just really in the first few chapters of Genesis. If you have your Bibles or Bible apps, this would be a perfect time to get those out and to turn with me to Genesis chapter 1, where we see in the creation story God's original design for us. So Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. And fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on earth. And so at the end of this day, family, the the sixth day, God looked at all he had done and he declared it as what? Good, right? He nailed it. He nailed it. But what happens, family, if we look closer at these verses, we see not only the creation story, but we see some important characteristics of our identity start to emerge. And so if you haven't started taking notes yet, now would be a good time to take them because I want to show you three things that we are designed to be. As children of God, three things we're designed to be. The first is that we are designed to be image bearers. We are designed to be image bearers, to look like our creator. Not physically, but characteristically. That's why of all the animals that God created... It was only to us that he gave this level of intelligence and reason to. That he gave this creativity and and personality to. And he did so with a purpose. right? So that we might resemble him in the ways we rule over his creation as a reflection of his glory. This is the identity he has called each of us into. To mirror his traits and his characteristics to the world around us. But because most of us suffer from a case of mistaken identity, our desire is to be a reflection of someone or something else. It makes me think of all the times as a kid when I was growing up, people would ask me, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? Anybody else get this question? It was exhausting, right? (laughs) And as simple and as innocent of a question as it seems like, I can't help but wonder as an adult, is it Really? Because I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel like I'm still under the, the weight of the disappointment that I didn't measure up to all the things that I had put out before myself. Seems like a simple and innocent question. Some of you might have even had other people tell you what you were going to be when you grew up. You had them speak expectations over you that you didn't even want, but now you're buried underneath the shame of somebody else's expectations. And I think there's a lot of us who put these other expectations on ourselves because we compare ourselves to our parents. We compare ourselves to our siblings. That's not who you were designed to be. Listen, if that's you, let me just say that you were not made in your mom's image. You were not made in your brother's image. You were not made in the image that somebody spoke over you. You were not even made in the image that you spoke over you. You were made in God's image. Family, there is so much freedom. You let yourself go from other people's expectations, even your own expectations of you. You were designed to be a reflection of God and of him alone. That's why I believe there is so much hope that is in this message, because it sets us free from those expectations. And it invites us to walk in the freedom of being just designed by God, knowing that we've been designed by our creator to look like him. We were designed to be image bearers. There's great freedom to be found in that, but there's also great freedom to be found in the second truth that's revealed in this creation story, and that's the fact that we were designed to be dependent. We were designed to be dependent. Now, I know this isn't exactly the message you hear out there, but it's the message we hear and hear in God's word. It's that we were never meant to figure this life out on our own. That's why when God creates Adam and Eve, he doesn't just leave them out in the wilderness to figure things out. No, what does he do? He acts like a good father and he places them into a garden. He gives them responsibility. He gives them instruction. He gives to them everything they need to do the things that he has called them to do. Starting with him. (laughs) They need him. See, this is a core part of our identity family. We were designed to be dependent. But since most of us suffer from a case of mistaken identity, all we want is what? Independence. We don't wanna be relying on anyone. We don't want somebody telling us what to do or when to do it. And so as a result, we often find ourselves like that petulant child who was always threatening to run away, right? They they go and they grab one change of clothes and last week's allowance and think they're gonna make it on their own out in the world. Some of us were that kid. But the reality is some of us have grown up and we're still acting like that child. We've grown up and we're still acting like that child only of coming to the realization like the kid normally does that they can't make it on their own out in the world. We choose to look around us and instead of running back to our father, we depend on other people or other things. This is a core part of who we are. We can't make it on our own. We are so dependent on God. So we can choose then. Like that kid who runs away. What do we depend on? The answer should be to depend on God. But the reality is, family, we don't really know what this looks like. Because I think most of us have been fighting for independence for so long that we have no idea what it actually practically looks like to depend on God. So if that's you, I want to just pause just to make the spiritual practical here for just a moment, give you some practical ways that you can depend on God in your life. You can start by praying sincere prayers. Now, this is when you ask God for wisdom and guidance with the intention of actually following through on the things that he tells you. I know it's not just me who prays, like, "Ah, would you give me wisdom? Would you give me guidance? Would you tell me what to do? And then he tells you, and you're like... Well, let's try this again. I don't think you heard me right the first time. Pray sincere prayers. When you hear that voice, when the Spirit moves you, follow it. Next, you can pursue rest. I know this one's foreign to a lot of us, but what happens when you set aside the demands of the world and accept the fact that you do have limitations, it's crazy how God can actually nourish you. It's crazy how He can provide for you. It's crazy how he could be everything you need him to be. It's almost like he told us he would do it, (laughs) right? So you can do this by praying sincere prayers, pursuing rest, and by trusting in his word. It's just quieting those outside voices and choosing instead to read and to meditate in scripture. We have a choice in the words that we are allowing to impact and influence our lives, And those first words shouldn't be the words that are on the radio, the words that are on the news. They should be the words that are in God's word, in Scripture. And lastly, the fourth option for you to depend on God is to lean on others. It's one of the beautiful parts about being a part of the body of Christ. He's given us each other to be an extension of Him. So we can turn to each other for the accountability, for the, the support, for the fellowship that we need because, again, we can't do this on our own. We are all dependent on someone or something. And when we come to realize that he has given us everything we need to do, everything he has called us to do, well then we should turn to him each and every time. And here's the good news, family, he's promised to be with us through all of it. So lean into your dependency, lean into those weaknesses because that's exactly how he designed you to be. You were designed to bear his image. You were designed to be dependent. And the third thing we see from this creation story is that we were designed to be worshipers. We were designed to be worshipers. Now, we see this a bit more clearly in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, we get a little bit closer look at God's creation of Adam and Eve specifically. And in chapter 2, verse 15, we read that the Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. Now, it's kind of a fly-by-line. You probably would just miss it if you weren't paying close attention. But he says to tend and to watch over it. Family, this is worship language. I want you to stick with me here because this is important. Adam and Eve were placed in the garden with a very specific and a very priestly purpose. Right? They weren't just working the garden so that they could eat. Right? They weren't just working the garden because they didn't have anything better to do. They were working as an act of servants, service and obedience to the Lord. They were tending to his creation. They were ministering to it. They were watching over it. And each of these selfless acts, they were reflecting his image and bringing him glory. That's worship. Reflecting his image and bringing him glory. That's what worship is, and that's who we were designed to be. See, I think we get it so often mixed up in our minds, but here's the truth I want you to remember this morning, family. That worship is first our identity before it's our activity worship is first our identity before it's our activity it's not just something we do it is who we are and what that means family is that everything in our lives then is an expression of worship our work our hobbies our commute time our families these are all opportunities for us to serve and to be obedient to the lord our friendships our errands our date nights these are all opportunities to bring him glory with our words and with our actions. This is why scripture tells us to take every thought captive. Because every thought, every moment is a moment to worship. And because we were designed to be worshippers, family. We will always devote our thoughts and our actions to something. The only question we have is to who or to What? So if you're living from a mistaken identity, the temptation is always going to be to find other things, to find other people to give our hearts to. That's why for so many of us, it's our job, it's our relationship, it's our reputation, it's even our kids that become our idols. The great reformer Martin Luther, he once said, whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God. And take a moment... (laughs) What does your heart cling to? What does your heart confide in? Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's your best friend. Listen, those aren't bad things. Those are people that God has put around you. But when you put them in place of God, they become the object of your worship. Living in our true identity family, it looks like worshiping God with everything you have because that is everything that you were designed to be. An image-bearing, dependent worshiper. And listen, for a brief time, that is exactly what Adam and Eve were. For a brief time, they were living in that sweet spot, in the way they were designed to live. That's why Genesis 2.25 tells us that they were naked and not ashamed. Naked and not ashamed. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but obviously God is very intentional with the words that he inspires. Why would he say that Adam and Eve were naked and not ashamed? He could have used any word there. Right? Naked and content. Naked and at peace. Naked and sin free. But he very specifically chose to say they were naked and not ashamed. Why? Well, this isn't an image, like a body image issue, right? What's being communicated here is that there were no barriers between them, they were living in perfect and harmonious community, that there was this deep level of intimacy between each other and between them and God. They were free from the influence and the impact of shame. This is how they were designed to live. It's how we were designed to live, naked and not ashamed. But we all know what happens next, right? Sin and shame enters into the world. But I want to actually break this down in actually terms of how it happens. So look back with me at God's word, if you would. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. It says this, And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. I'm not sure if you can see it here, but what the the serpent is doing is he's sowing seeds of shame by calling into question the very identity that Adam and Eve had just received. See, by, by planting these seeds and by twisting this truth, the serpent is shifting the focus from how Adam and Eve were designed to live to what they felt like they deserved. And so all of a sudden, what I want you to see here is this simple truth that they were not enough goes from being a point of connection with God to a point of contention with God. Do you see that? Yes. He takes this truth and he twists it from being a point of connection with God to being a point of contention with God. I think this is why Genesis 3.1 calls out the craftiness of the serpent because he can and he has and he will take the truth of who we are. That we are on our own, are not enough. And you will turn that from a point of connection with God to a point of contention. To the point where Adam and Eve, well, they believe they deserve more than they were created for. They felt like they deserve more than they were created for. And that right there is the root of sin, family. Every sin ever is rooted in the belief that we deserve more than we were created for. You can test me on that, I promise you. Every sin ever is rooted in the belief that we deserve more than we were created for. And it starts right here. When we forget about how we were designed and we focus only on what we feel we deserve. Right? So even though we were designed to, be, to bear his image, we feel like we deserve more, don't we? We don't want to just resemble him. We want to rule in his place. So we deny our design by doing things our way, in our strength, for our glory. We want to write our own story. We want to be our own person. And what does the world tell us? That that's our right. Right. That we deserve that. Even though that's not the way we were designed. But if we're being honest with ourselves, it doesn't matter that that's not how we were designed. Because we don't want to bear his image. That's not enough. We want his throne. In the same way, family, when we come to this realization that, that we're dependent on God, we realize, hey, that's not enough. We deserve more, don't we? We deserve to be independent. We deserve to be in control, to choose our own path. The world tells us that dependency is a sign of weakness, and that's something that we should be what? Ashamed of. Scripture tells us otherwise. The greatest strength is displayed actually in our weakness. And on being reliant on somebody other than us. Because that's how we're designed to be. But yet we give in to this temptation for more. And what all of this leads to, family, is that we become the focus of our own worship. We become the focus of our own worship. We don't want to worship somebody else. We want to receive the glory. Do you see how Satan takes this truth and he twists it? These points of connection and he turns them into a point of contention. He even goes so far as to tempt Eve with something that was already true of her. Right? Isn't it ridiculous? He's like, if you do this, then you will be like God. Well, she already was. Doesn't matter. She wanted more. And so this point of connection turns to a point of contention. And as we're about to see, family, I mean, it's going to lead to separation as Adam and Eve give in to that temptation. That temptation that they deserved more. And so they live outside of their identity. And we see what happens in verses 6 and 7. It says So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. What we see here, family, is the very first consequence of sin it's shame. The very first consequence of sin is shame. Since they realized they were naked and that nakedness, it caused them shame. That's why they went and they they got fig leaves and they, they made loincloths. Now here's what this means for us. It means that when we try to be something that we're not, when we go in search of more than what we were designed for, we will inevitably come to this place where we realize we are not enough and we will see that as a flaw and not as a design feature. We will see that as a flaw and not as a design feature. We'll see that as something that is wrong with us. Rather than that is something that is right and true about us. And as a response, we will cover ourselves in shame. And I hope this has been obvious to you by now, but in case it's not, I want to just take a second to make it clear that shame is a consequence that we impose on ourselves. It is not a consequence that is given or used by God. Shame is not given or used by God ever. It may be the first consequence of sin, but we impose it on ourselves, right? God is going to issue some consequences. Those are gonna come verses 16 through 19, right? Pain in childbirth, challenge working the land, broken relationships, and of course, the consequence of death. But never once, as God is disciplining Adam and Eve, does he issue shame as a consequence. And I think that's important for us to point out, family, because it can help you differentiate between God's corrective voice and shame's condemning voice. We need to understand that shame never comes from our Father. Right? See, God's corrective voice, it will discipline and direct you when you've done something wrong. It may use guilt, sure, to refine and to purify you. It'll never use shame. Shame's condemning voice, on the other hand, that will lead you not to believe that you've done something wrong, but that you are wrong that's why shame is different than guilt right guilt leads to conviction and to change shame's only purpose is to define you so that it can dis- destroy you that's why satan will take whatever that thing is whatever that thing is that causes you shame and he will try to attach it to who you are maybe it's that mistake that you made in high school maybe it's that addiction you've been hiding Maybe it's not even something that you've done. Maybe it's something that has been done to you. To our enemy, it doesn't matter. He will take whatever that thing is, and he will get you to attach it to who you are because he wants to destroy you. Before you know it, family, you are living in a life that is totally immersed in, influenced, and impacted by shame. That is not how we were designed to live. So here's what I want to do with the rest of our time this morning. If you haven't already, I want to actually ask you to do some self-examination here. I want you to consider how you respond to the voice of shame. It's clear by now we're all familiar with this voice, right? Some of us are even fluent in the voice of shame. But how do you respond to it? Because I think there's a few ways that the enemy wants us to respond to that voice of shame. One of those ways he wants you to respond is by becoming a perfectionist. This is when you try to silence the voice of shame through your performance, right? By choosing to chase after that kind of identity that you can achieve rather than just resting in the one that you've already received. What happens, family, when you do this is you start to tie your self-worth to getting that job, to getting that promotion, to making the team, to acing the test, and of course, when it, when it doesn't happen, if it doesn't happen, we find ourselves with a broken identity and a suitcase full of shame. If that's you, I want you to hear this. God doesn't ask for perfection. He simply wants you to be a reflection of him. He doesn't want success. He wants obedience. He wants your worship. Another way our enemy wants us to respond to the voice of shame is by becoming a critic. This is when you don't even try to silence the voice of shame. You actually are the first one to jump in and join with it. I think the danger of this kind of response is that oftentimes that criticism doesn't just stay in here, does it? It starts to spread and we start to criticize those around us. And the third way our enemy wants you to respond is by becoming a pessimist. Now this is different than a critic. See, a critic will follow shame down that that path, but a pessimist is already down at that end of the road. Right? This is where your natural instinct is to assume the worst because in your mind, you are the worst. And at least this way, by the time you come to that realization, you won't be disappointed. These are the ways the enemy wants you to respond by becoming that perfectionist or that critic or that pessimist. But family, did you notice what all three of those have, have in common? They're all focused on you. They're all meant to keep your eyes focused inwards and keep your eyes off of jesus to get so fixated on who you are not that you forget about who christ is family it's time to embrace the truth that you are not enough and to receive the grace that comes from the one who is that's the good news of the gospel you're not enough and you don't have to be because jesus came to take your place And he came to live that perfect life and to die the death that you deserve to die so that he might redeem and restore you. You were never meant to be enough on your own because Jesus is enough for you. So, as I invite the band back up now, I want to offer up a new way for you to respond to the voice of shame. And it's really simple three words look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. In those moments when you're tempted to be something that you're not, remember that you were designed to resemble and to represent the creator of the universe. In those moments when you're tempted to rely on your own strength, look to Jesus and depend on him because his grace is sufficient for you. 2 right? Corinthians 12.9 tells us his power is made perfect in our what? Our weakness. So look to him in those moments of weakness. Find comfort in your shortcomings, knowing that it's in those moments when you feel at your worst that Christ's power rests upon you. What a promise that is. Look to Jesus, family. The voice of shame tempts you towards perfection, towards criticism, towards pessimism. Take your eyes off of yourself. And look to Jesus. Because it's Jesus that came to take the consequence of your sin, but he also bore your shame on the cross. You no longer have to live in that shame of what you've done. You no longer have to live in shame of what's been done to you. You've been set free, family. But it starts with understanding who you've been created to be and living into that freedom so i want to invite you with every head bowed and and every eye closed just to take a moment just in the stillness and the, in the quiet of this room i want you just to ask one question god who do you say that i am we're surrounded by voices that want to tell us who we are that want to tell us who we should be, that want to tell us who we are going to be, but there's only one voice that matters. Just take a moment, ask God, Lord, who do you say I am? Father, we thank you. Thank you for the truth of your word that reminds us we are image bearers. We are dependent worshipers. Pray of my brothers and sisters who are here this morning, Lord, those who carried in the weight of intense shame. Pray that they would simply be reminded of who you say that they are that they would be set free from the shame that's been put on them, that they might walk in the freedom of a right relationship with you. But you remind them this morning that that shame was nailed to the cross over 2,000 years ago. They no longer need to walk in that shame because Christ's power rests upon them. We thank you for your grace, Lord. We thank you for your mercy. We pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.